You're listening to The Creation Academy, a weekly podcast defending the truth of God's Word in biblical creation science. I'm your host, Steve Schramm, and on this week's lesson, we're talking specifically about observational failures in radioisotope dating methods. Now, that sounds like a mouthful, uh, and it's even more of a mouthful once we start talking about it, but uh, it's an important subject that we deal often with here. As a matter of fact, our very first episode was dealing with radiometric dating, and what we did in our very first episode of this podcast was uh, take a look at the uh, faulty assumptions involved in radiometric dating methods, and we're actually going to kind of do a little bit of a review session here, do a little bit of review session, but in that podcast, I promised that we would revisit this, and we would look at some concrete examples, and as a matter of fact, I received um, some communication from a gentleman uh, this past week, and I'm not going to say his name or anything. Uh, He was very, very kind and very, very helpful, provided some good comments about the podcast, and um, requested uh, that we go ahead and give uh, some more examples of this radiometric dating. In fact, he said that he he really missed that uh, in the first episode, was that we we didn't really give any examples of um, where this dating method fails, or where these dating methods fail. And I thought it'd be a good time to revisit that. Um, now that we are finished out with our series, the basics of creation science, and uh, and let me just let me just kind of go back and say, um, I, I kind of want everybody to realize that these first episodes uh, or first lessons of this podcast were really meant to be an introduction to what uh, creationists uh, believe. And uh, kind of an introduction to what uh, today's creation scientists believe and and are working with. Uh, and so I don't want anyone to get the impression, um, especially if you've listened uh, to the podcast um, all the way through so far, I don't want anyone to get the impression that we're never going to dive deep into subjects, that we're never going to talk uh, about uh, good evidence for creation and, and such like that. Uh, as a matter of fact, I, I mentioned briefly throughout, but I'll reiterate it again, that I have plans to go through um, books, uh, to actually use creationist literature and go through those and uh, and examine uh, those books and take those apart and um, kind of learn chapter by chapter uh, what uh, people believe. And um, so... Uh, we're going to go through those things. We're going to look at those things. I've got some different ideas for different kinds of shows. Uh, one of the things I'd like to do, and um, again, you might have to remind me on down the road or I'll forget, but uh, one of the things that uh, I'd really like to do is take a look at some of these memes that float around the internet and just uh, just take an episode and, and dissect one. You know what I mean? Every now and then they crop up and, uh, you know, we laugh at that. But here's the thing. Like these internet memes have a lot of power. I mean, I work in information technology for a living and uh, I'm very aware of the power of the internet. And uh, just to see some of these memes get around, they seem so silly. And as informed creationists, if you want to learn more, by the way, about how to become an informed creationist, I'd take a listen to last week's episode. But as informed creationists, uh, we look at some of these memes and, and we're like, this uh, this isn't even what we believe. Or, or this doesn't even make any sense. Or at the very least, it's easily refutable. And so... um. Some of you guys may or may not, you know, I don't know where you are in your in your journey on this, but some of you guys may or may not um, look at those and say, oh man, we can easily take that apart. Uh, in many cases, they provide a common um, but very succinct challenge. Uh, for the Christian faith and uh, against maybe creation. And so uh, people who maybe don't study this subject very well uh, might be persuaded uh, not to believe um, what we teach as recent creationists by some of these things. And so they're important. So uh, they seem silly. I mean, they're just pictures uh, floating around the internet, but they have a massive impact. And so um, I have good plans for the show uh, going forward. And uh, I just appreciate every one of you who has uh, um, come on this journey with me so far. I've heard from uh, a few of you. And uh, boy, I just really, really appreciate being able to do this for you. I appreciate God allowing 
this to be able to do this for you. Uh, I've mentioned it many times here. You know, I'm nobody special. Uh, I'm not a scientist, okay? I'll repeat it as many times as I need to. I'm I'm not a scientist, but I truly love uh, my Lord, and I truly love His creation. And I've studied this for a while now, and um, I just want to uh, share with others what I've learned. Now, um, you know, am am I, uh, you know, some kind of learned individual when it comes to, uh, you know, in deep in any area of the sciences? Well, no. Uh, you know, I, like I said, I don't have a PhD in anything. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't have that. Uh, I'm not a scientist. I'm, I'm not an engineer. Um, you know, I, I'm not uh, a geologist. I'm not an astronomer. I'm not any of those things. And if, if, um, if for some reason that does cause a a problem for you in listening, then, um, you know, don't feel bad. Uh, you don't have to listen. Um, uh, and again, uh, you know, I just want everybody to know that, uh, the position where I'm coming from, I want you to know me. I want you to know that I love my Lord. I want you to know that I love creation science. I'm very passionate about it. And I'll always do my best to give you the best and most accurate information that, uh, that I possibly can as we go through this journey together okay Uh, so i just want you to be aware of that but we do have good plans for the show we have uh, good things coming up in the future um some things that i can't quite dive into yet um because i'm still working on ironing out some of the details um but I'm just really, really excited. So uh, hang around. We're doing good things here, I believe. And uh, and we'll just keep on moving forward for the Lord. All right. Now, uh, one th- thing I do want to mention before we dive into the content for this week is to, once again, um, go to steveshram.com slash defend. I will have this in the show notes. steveshram.com slash defend. And when you go there, you are going to find a email course called Defend Your Faith with confidence. Now, if you're not signed up for this yet, I want to highly encourage you to to get signed up for this, especially especially if you're pretty new to the idea of apologetics, which of course uh, means to give a defense for the Christian faith, okay, to answer, to give an answer, an apologia, okay, to give an answer. Um, That's what uh, we're doing here, uh, ultimately, is apologetics. And my blog at steveshram.com is um, definitely deals with creation, but is more generally uh, speaking apologetics. Okay, we deal with many different subjects, um, a, a lot wider gamut on the blog than we do here on the podcast because this podcast is pretty specifically uh, uh, centered around creation science rather than apologetics as a whole. Now, every now and then we might you know, delve a little bit into one area uh, or another that's not, you know, quite creation related, but ultimately it will be. Ultimately it will be. And so um, I encourage you to go there. If you're looking for uh, four answers to some of the toughest objections to Christianity, Um, and what I've done, I've wrote this email course called Defend Your Faith with Confidence, and that's what I do in it. I I kind of look at four common objections to Christianity, and I kind of give four answers to those things that you need to have uh, tucked away in your tool belt. Um, And so uh, that's how we do it. And that's what I've done for you. And that's completely free. Again, uh, all I ask from you is that you give me your email address and your first name. Give me your first name, your email address, and we will send you that course, uh, Defend Your Faith with Confidence. It's a six-day course, uh, has an introduction, four lessons, and a conclusion. And I've already had many people go through that and to comment uh, how helpful that has been um, in their walk just to uh, to get started, especially for those who have no prior knowledge really about um, apologetics. So uh, that's been really helpful for them. I think it can be very helpful for you as well. So I highly encourage you to go to stevestriam.com slash defend and check that out. Okay, uh, before um, anything else, let's go ahead and get into the uh, content for today. Observational failures in radioisotope dating methods. Okay, we're going to be looking at some, uh, just three examples. I'm sure we could find more if we looked around the internet, but we're going to look at just three uh, in the interest of time. But I am going to give you a fourth example um, that's not technically an example of a radioisotope failure, um, but it really, really uh, provides evidence that uh, millions of years are not 
necessary in order to see the geographical, the geological, the topological uh, landscape that we see on this earth today. Uh, we do not need millions of years to explain that, contrary uh, to what popular science uh, says. Uh, we just don't need that kind of time. And my fourth example is going to kind of uh, lend some credence to that and, and take that route. So as we're looking at this, I, I want you to uh, keep in mind a few things about radiometric dating. As I said, we're going to kind of review a little bit uh, some of the stuff that we talked about in episode number one, just to kind of make sure we're back on the same page. Uh, so in the radioisotope dating methods, so you have parent atoms and then you have daughter atoms. And what happens is that uh, the radioactive decay process on elements and atoms that are radioactive decays one uh, from the parent element to its daughter element. Now, there are often steps in between there, uh, but ultimately, ultimately, we have a parent and a daughter. We have one that we know we're going to start with and then one that we know we're going to end with um, because the one that we end with ultimately is a stable atom, okay? And so it's stable, and it's not going to uh, decay any longer, and we know that and realize that. So there are three common types that are typically used in the uh, in the lab, okay, for radiometric dating. And those three are, that are the most popular are potassium to argon dating, uranium to lead dating, and then rubidium to strontium dating. Now, I did mention this in the first episode as well, of course, but um, what's really interesting is the Earth is considered to be about 4.5 billion years old. 4.5, 4.6, heard somewhere in between there, a billion years old. That's the latest numbers coming from uh, the scientific community, okay? That's what, that's what everybody believes. Um, the uranium-lead method is the uh, only method uh, that goes back that far, uh, as far as the half-life, okay? It's got a half-life of uh, almost 4.5 billion years. And what's interesting to me is that the other dating methods are actually calibrated to that one. So it's very much a, a self-fulfilling prophecy, okay? Uh, the dating methods are going to work uh, simply because they are always calibrated whenever there is discrepancy uh, to the uranium-lead model. And so um, uh, because of that, I don't think we can get an intellectually honest um, assessment from radiometric dating to start with. Um We'll pick that battle another time, uh, but just be aware of that, okay? Just be aware of that. Now, uh, I want to also highlight the fact, again, that the assumptions that go into this whole process of radiometric dating are faulty. Now, I realize that's quite a claim to make, and here's why I can uh, pretty confidently make it. The assumptions are faulty because they cannot be proven, Assumptions that cannot be proven to be true um, are faulty. Now, uh, people say, well, no, that's how we do science. I've heard that rebuttal. Well, that's how we do science. We make assumptions. And um, I understand that. I'm on board with that. I'm okay with that. The problem is that if you have to make unprovable assumptions in order to... Um, to, to use this methodology, then I'm not so certain that you can actually be 100% correct. And this is actually why, on a side note, uh, that I claim uh, wholeheartedly that science can neither prove nor disprove God. Uh, the reality is when we do creation science, we have to make assumptions too. But our assumptions are based on the Bible. Now, the Bible and this is a subject for a, a different time, uh, but the Bible is self-authenticating in itself. Um, the Bible is in itself um, an assumption as far as the age goes. We can get the assumption of age out of the Bible that we use to start with. So we operate on assumptions too. I'm not downing assumptions, but you have to have good reasons uh, for using your assumptions. The reason that we have good reasons for using our assumption, uh, being the time scale given in the Bible, is that the Bible, as 
as a historically reliable document has been proven to be true. Okay, I mean the the Bible is a historically uh, reliable document. Um, I've seen plenty of secular. Uh, uh, historians and scholars uh, who would agree with that. Um, I don't have it in front of me. I wish I did, but there's a quote out there on the internet from the Smithsonian uh, along those lines. Um, the fact of the matter is that the Bible is is reliable. Now, that does not mean that people... Um, believe everything that is in it, okay? Uh, they don't believe the conclusions that many of us Christians draw, um, due to our belief in the Bible, uh, but that does not mean that they don't believe uh, the Bible uh, is reliable from a historical perspective. Um, they just leave out some of the supernatural things um, and stuff like that. So, uh, But what I want you to realize today is that science can neither prove or disprove God. We, when we talk about creation science, um, we're simply just trying to make sense of the world as we know that it is uh, because of how the Bible reports it to us. So yes, we're using um, models to do that. We use scientific models. That's what anybody does. But you have to have a little better evidence than a model to go on. And when your assumptions are totally faulty going into something, then I think you're going to have a really, really hard time making your case. Right, so uh, you cannot prove these assumptions of radiometric dating to be true, and that poses a big problem. And here are the assumptions, just to go through them uh, by way of review. Now, first of all, we have to know, or we have to assume, that there was zero trace of the daughter element at the time of formation. Okay, so um, a lot of the rocks that we test, of course, they're formed, um, you know, because of volcanic activity. And so these lava flows harden, and uh, these are called igneous rocks, of course. And so they harden, and over time, uh, we can, uh, using the assumption, right, using the assumption that there was none of the daughter element in the rock and only the parent element was in the rock, we can run the numbers and get the difference between them and find how long we think, based on the half-life, that the rock has been there. And so that is our, uh, our first uh, assumption. Now, this cannot be proven unless you were there, unless you were there, uh, when the rock hardened, okay, uh, and, and when it initially formed to kind of understand um, what kind of elements were um, in the environment whenever this was going on, uh, there's no way to, to prove that there was none of the daughter element in play. So you would have to work on the basis that only the parent element was there in the beginning. All right, that's number one. Now the second assumption in play here is that there was zero contamination in the rock sample. That means over time, um, however long it took for the particular uh, rock formation to harden up, um, there was no way that uh, it could have been contaminated with different elements, um, with, uh, for instance, some of the daughter element. Uh, we have to make that assumption. Now, this is extremely unlikely. Extremely unlikely. And, um, I mean, even rocks themselves are porous, okay? Uh, and so gas can move through them, albeit very, very slowly, okay? Um, but gas can move through them and could even possibly uh, diffuse into the rock uh, given the environment, okay? So the point is that uh, it is not likely that in the history of um, the Earth's rocks that there was just no contamination. Uh, by the way, we see plenty of contamination in uh, rock samples of known age. So why would they not be there in rocks of unknown uh, age? So there, there's no reason to make that assumption. That, that's the problem. That's the problem is we're making assumptions in order to make this dating method work that there's no reason to make because they cannot be proven true. So that's our issue. All right. Now the third one is this, that there was zero fluctuation in the rate of decay throughout history. And that has also been shown not to be true. As a matter of fact, uh, some of our creation geologists are doing some good work in this area um, showing how the flood would have drastically accelerated uh, many of the natural processes we see on the earth uh, today. And so the rate of decay could have been very different uh, post-flood uh, based on the changing environment variables uh, and things of that nature. Um, what we have to realize is that the flood was not that long ago. 
I mean, uh, you know, in the context of, of earth history, uh, from a biblical uh, chronology, a biblical time period, uh, the earth is old, yes, uh, but it's not that old. I mean, we're still having uh, things that we believe um, are happening, some of our earthquakes and tsunamis and things of that nature. We still believe that uh, things are settling down from the catastrophe of the flood. Things are not... Um, so serene and so slow moving on this earth. Okay. We have rapid processes still going on on this earth. And a lot of things we think are just a recovery uh, process settling in from the Grand Canyon and uh, I'm sorry, from the, uh, from the flood. All right. Uh, and so we can see that in different parts of the earth, including the Grand Canyon. But we think that because of the, how drastic a flood year was and how devastating it was to uh, the geography of the world, we believe that, uh, that there was definitely a fluctuation in the rate of decay. Uh, there's no reason to believe that there would not uh, be. And uh, just to kind of put my money where my mouth is on that, um, let me kind of give you uh, just one um, example. So uh, uranium-238, of course, we know that it eventually decays into lead-206. And... Uh, but the problem is here, as I mentioned earlier, some of these uh, methods have processes in between. Well, this process is a 14-step process. Now, potassium argon, for instance, is a one-step process. Uh, but this is a 14-step uh, process. And in each of those cases, um, helium is being released into the atmosphere because helium is actually a, uh, a byproduct um, of every time that uranium-238 converts into lead-206, um, eight helium atoms are uh, produced. And so this helium gas is a, a byproduct of uranium decay. Now, here's the thing. We know that it's a gas, right? It can leak through rocks, things of that nature. Um, it's eventually going to escape into the uh, atmosphere. Now, I mentioned a while ago, uh, not on this podcast yet, but in that first podcast, certainly, and some other ones, I've mentioned something called the rate project. Now, the rate project, the radioisotopes and the age of the earth uh, project was carried out by a, a bunch of creation scientists. I think it was like an eight year project or something like that. And they did a lot of good work in a lot of different areas. Uh, one of those areas was, of course, uh, well, the primary area was radioisotope dating. And so one of the things they looked at was the helium content in some of these rocks. And so uh, due to the rate at which helium um, is escaping these rocks, uh, which is fairly high, uh, if the rocks were billions of years old, the helium uh, would have had plenty of time to escape. So there should be very little helium in the rocks that we that we find. Uh, the problem is, is that the rate team, when they were doing this uh, experiment, uh, they found a ton of helium. Um, in the rocks. They, they absolutely found a ton. And uh, the amount of helium that we find is actually pretty consistent with the biblical age of uh, of the earth for just a few thousand years, okay? Um, not totally, okay, not completely, but it's pretty consistent with that. Um, however, wildly inconsistent with billions of years, all right? So uh, let's get that in, in place first. So uh, we have high helium content in these rocks, and we should not, now, here's the kicker. The fact that such helium is present does also suggest that a great deal of radioactive decay has certainly happened, right? Because remember, um, it is a byproduct of the uranium decay process. And so because of that, um, there is going to be a bunch, if a bunch has happened. And so um, a lot of uranium uh, must have decayed into lead that produced the helium, but obviously it has not um, escaped from the rocks. And so we've got kind of a problem here. Um, it would take billions of years uh, at the current half-life of uranium-238 um, for this to happen. Uh, but if it actually took billions of years, then the helium would have escaped the rocks. Do you see kind of the paradox we have there? That's a pretty big problem. Um, so how do we make sense of the data? We have two ends of it. Well, uh, of pretty reasonable explanation uh, is that if the half-life of uranium-238 were uh, to have been much smaller in the past, um, in other words, it transferred into um, uh, the lead-206 uh, faster than it does today, then that makes sense of the data. Now, there's some more to be done there. Again, I highly recommend you buy um, 
um, thousands, not billions, I think is what it's called. It might be thousands, not millions. That is the popular level book by Dr. Don DeYoung that totally highlights the rate project process. And I will go ahead and put a link to that in the uh, show notes for you as well um, that I highly uh, recommend that you uh, get on that. So you should check that out. So anyway, uh, point being, and I've spent more time on that than I want to do, but the point uh, here is that none of these assumptions that are used for the radiometric dating process uh, hold water. Uh, none of them are necessary that we assume. And uh, in fact, when we do assume them, uh, we simply cause problems uh, for the data that we that we have and that we know. So with all that out of the way, let's take a look at some examples of known age rocks. Known age rocks that have tested wildly inconsistently um, with the dating method that they suggested um, in order to do it. Uh, so let's look at, uh, first of all, Mount St. Helens. This is um, a, a, a common go-to for creationists uh, simply because the Mount St. Helens uh, eruption tells us so much about how things might have happened uh, in the flood, especially when we look at something like the Grand Canyon, and we can um, get an idea of how such a structure formed. Uh, in fact, Mount St. Helens in that area has, has been referred to as the mini Grand Canyon. I mean, it's quite quite an astounding sight. I'd love to get out there one day and actually see it for myself. I've only seen pictures Um but uh, it, but it looks great, and it, it's really really a testament to how this um, how this could have happened, how the flood could have happened, and the kind of destruction that um, that we would uh, assume to have taken place. Again, uh, when we talk about the flood, we're not just talking about water uh, because of the model that we uh, we affirm catastrophic plate tectonics. Um, it deals with a ton of volcanic activity. There would just be a ton of volcanic activity because of the shifting of the plates of the earth. I mean, things would have just been crazy. When we said the global flood was a worldwide catastrophe, I mean, we do mean a catastrophe. Um, it was destruction by water, yes, but there was a lot more involved uh, than just the water. And so uh, we kind of see in the Mount St. Helens incident a little bit of how that might have happened. So, um, of course, uh, I want to look at specifically uh, the lava dome there on Mount St. Helens. It's pretty famous, uh, the Mount St. Helens lava dome. And so there's a few uh, things we need to look at by way of background information. So uh, this lava dome uh, was formed between 1980 and 19. 86. Now, this is not that long ago, okay? So, uh, just to be, you know, absolutely safe here, we're within 40 years. Let's at Worst case scenario, we'd say 40 years. We're within 40 years, 37 years, I guess, uh, removed from the time uh, that this began to happen. And so, again, uh, we know the age of these rocks. They cannot be older than about 37 years, Um and so we expect when we send these guys off to the lab to get a certain um, result. Uh, and so we sent them off as part of this um, uh, testing, and we sent them to Geochron Laboratories of Cambridge, Massachusetts. Now, uh, what happened here is Dr. Steve Austin, very well-known um, creation geologist, and he is more of a, a soft rock geologist, and... Uh, he got a 15-pound block of dacite um, from very high up on the lava dome and sent that in for uh, testing, different parts of it. So um, this lab uh, in Massachusetts, Geochron, is a, a high-quality professional radioisotope dating uh, laboratory, okay? Um, they were only given um, a little bit of information. They were told that the samples came from dacite and that low argon uh, should be expected. Uh, this is all that they were told there at the lab so as to not uh, influence or contaminate their results. So they were not told that this specimen came from the lava dome at Mount St. Helens um, and that at the time of its testing, it was only about 10 years old. So uh, they weren't told that. So, you know, this is going to be interesting, right? We would expect to get back from them uh, a certain result. And here is what they told us. They told us that the results range from 340,000 to 2.8 million years. 340,000 to 2.8 million years for 10-year-old rocks. And a couple things going on here. Number one, 
That is an extremely high margin of error. Okay. Well, they could be 340, 340,000 or 2.8 million. Um, that's a long time. Now, I've realized, though, I've realized that to those who believe the Earth is billions of years old, that's a very short amount of time. Um, but for uh, anyone else, uh, certainly for someone who uh, takes the Bible to be true as far as its chronology of only a little over 6,100 or so years, uh, that's a long time. That's a big error margin uh, between 340,000 and 2.8 million years. I mean, that is just catastrophic, a nearly 2.5 million year uh, margin of error. Uh, so that, anyway, that, you know, that's going to that's gonna be a huge, huge problem. Um, and so uh, that's number one. All right, number two, uh, these results obviously were came, uh, came back as uh, filtered through the standard process uh, using the dating methods that we talked about, using the standard assumptions, those assumptions that we assume would be faulty. And remember, if assumptions are faulty, then it's very, very likely that we're going to get faulty results. Um, and this is so um, easily seen in examples where we know the age of the rocks going into the test. And so that's what happened here. All right. Now, so this quite obviously invalidates the dating method. I mean, you, you it's, it's a crazy margin of error. We know it's 10 years, but it could be 340,000 to 2.8 million years. Really? Here's the thing. If this were the only example, I mean, if this were the only example, I think to me it would be enough to question the results, um, to question the dating methods. Uh, if this were the only example. Uh, but I've got two more for you. I've got two more for you. But before we move on from this one, I want you to um, understand a couple of things. Now, the evolutionary explanation for this, or the secular explanation for this, is that um, of excess argon. That's what they call it, excess argon, okay? And so probably some of the argon-40 uh, was incorporated into the rock initially by a process known as inheritance, uh, giving it the great appearance of age, all right? So uh, because of inheritance, we see that uh, there was more argon in this rock than they uh, expected, and... Um, so that that's the explanation for it. Okay, well, that's fine. But why is that not the explanation for every other time? In examples of known age, there is argon contamination in there, or argon inheritance. Why should we assume that that is not the case in rocks of unknown age? See, we use that, that assumption, uh, but we shouldn't. If it happened once, it could happen again. All right, so we shouldn't use that assumption. Now, notice what the correct answer should have been. From an evolutionary perspective, uh, in order, if their dating assumptions would have been right, uh, the correct answer would have been that there was zero argon, indicating that the sample was too young to date using the potassium-argon method. Uh, that would have been a correct answer um, to come back from the lab. But, of course, that's not what we received. We see 340,000 to 2.8 million years, which is quite obviously... Uh, not good. Not good. And uh, it's not good uh, because it's not true. It's not good because it's not true. So that is the example of the Mount St. Helens Lava Dome. Let's move on to the Cardenas Basalt in the Grand Canyon. Um, so uh, this uh, Grand Canyon Basalt was dated using the Rubidium Strontium uh, Isochron Method. Um, now, the Isochron Method uh, is very, very uh, mathematically um, intense and um, a, a bit out of scope, okay, for what we'll talk about today. Uh, but basically what you need to know is that the uh, the Isochron Method just means that the they, they do some mathematical work to try and determine whether or not their first two assumptions are true, um, whether uh, there was no daughter elements present at the formation of the rock and whether there has been any contamination. And so that it's pretty clever uh, mathematically how they try to do that. But uh, even that dating method relies on the fact that the rates of decay have been constant. Um, we believe that the... Uh, rates of decay, of course, were accelerated in the past around uh, Noah's flood. We talked about that already uh, today. Uh, but I uh, so realized that that's how this uh, dating method was used for the Cardenas basalt. Okay, now the, the basalt uh, yielded an age of about 1.7 billion years. 1.7 billion years. So now if we use that same rubidium strontium method to date lava 
from volcanoes on the north rim of the Grand Canyon. Uh, well, then we get a bit of a different story. So allow me to explain a little bit. Now, we know uh, that these volcanoes are some of the youngest rocks in the canyon. As a matter of fact, geologists generally think that they erupted only, I say that lightly, but only a million years or so ago. Um, and the reason is because they spilled lava into the canyon after it had been eroded okay so based on that they are assuming uh going into it that these rocks are only about a million or so years old and so when we run that same rubidium strontium uh, isochron method on it guess what age we get 1.34 billion years now if we were to Take the dating method at face value. Remember, we saw that the basalt was 1.7 billion years old. All right, now we also see that the lava flow on the north rim, okay, those rocks dated at 1.34 billion years. So not only did they uh, assume wrong, okay, they uh, generally think that they erupted only a million years ago, but they were measured at 1.34 billion years. Now, if we were to follow that to its logical conclusion, we would have to say that the top of the canyon would be older than the bottom. Right? The top's 1.34 billion years. The bottom is 1.7 billion years. But they believe that it formed only a million years ago. There's obviously something wrong with the dating method. One of the assumptions is not correct. Either the isochron method did not accurately um, rule out the first two assumptions from being false, or the accelerated age has to be taken accounted for, that there was an acceleration in those rates of decay. And so things are different, all right? Um, just uh, the dating method is not working here. I hope you're seeing that by now. Uh, the dating methods are just not working here. And the thing is, we, we the the only reason we have very few examples is because nobody is challenging this. I mean, we have more examples that I'm giving you here, okay? You, I want you to do your own research a little bit here. I don't have time to give you everything. Um, but what you need to realize is that nobody's questioning these things. Everybody just works off of their assumptions. And by working off of their assumptions, they're kind of getting themselves caught in in, in a loop. I don't know if any of you were ever Star Trek fans, but uh, if you were, maybe you can resonate here. Uh, they are in just a temporal loop, man. They're going back and forth and back and forth, replaying the same story all over again. And they're not getting anywhere because they're not questioning their fundamental assumptions about the ages of things. Whenever new evidence crops up, whether it be dinosaur soft tissue, whether it be certain rock formations, no matter what it is, we never assume that the age is the problem. We always assume that the age is the thing we got right. There must be another mechanism somewhere. There must be something else that explains it. Uh, there always has to be something else because the dating methods are solid in their estimation. And so... Uh, we, we, we talk about this a lot because we bump into this a lot. We deal with the dating methods a lot when we're trying to determine the age of the earth. And so as a creation uh, community, we have to fight this battle constantly. And we kind of feel like we're um, being redundant sometimes. But, uh, you know, again, sometimes we just have to deal with it and do what we will with it. Okay, so uh, that was the example of the Cardenas Basalt in the Grand Canyon. I want to give you one final radiometric dating example uh, of a observational failure when it comes to this, okay? So let's look at Mount uh, Ngaraho, and I hope I'm saying that right, not messing with it too bad, um, but is in New Zealand, Mount Ngaraho, and it is uh, their newest volcano and one of their most active uh, there in New Zealand. Now, it is thought to have been active for at least uh, 2,500 years or so, uh, and it's had more than 70 eruptive periods since 1839. That's quite a bit, okay? That's quite a bit. Um, and that was, of course, when the first uh, uh, settlers, the first European settlers there, uh, recorded a steam eruption. Now, there could have been, uh, of course, plenty before that, but that is when the first settlers there had recorded one, and so we have more than 70 occurrences since then. Now, the first one uh, seen by them uh, was about 1870. Okay, so they arrived in um, 1839, uh, but they uh, recorded the first one to happen there in 1870. And uh, they had ash eruptions then every few years until a major um, uh, eruption happened between April and May of 1948. 
All right, now this is followed by lava flowing down the northwestern slopes there in February 1949. Now, there's another eruption that lasted from uh, the 13th of May in 1954 to the 10th of March in 1955, and it began with an explosive ejection of ash and blocks. I'm just trying to give you some background information here uh, on the Mount Ngaraho. Okay, so, um, and that one, almost 8 million cubic meters of lava flow um, flowed from the crater in a series of 17 distinct flows. 17 different flows, 8 million cubic meters, which is about 280 million cubic feet. So, um, what we saw there is that cannon-like highly explosive eruptions in January and March 1974 then uh, threw out large quantities of ash as a column into the atmosphere and as avalanches flowing down the cones sides. So we got a couple recorded instances, uh, instances here, 1948 to 1949, 1954 to 1955, then we've got a 1974. Um, lots of uh, volcanic activity going on here. And again, more than 70 eruptions in Superior when they first arrived. But uh, So there is these three that we know about and that we are looking at here. Now, 11 samples uh, were collected from five of the recent lava flows during field work. Uh, in January 1996. All right, now two of them were taken from uh, the 1949, ele uh, 11th of February, 1949, all right, the 4th of June, 1954, and the 14th of July, 1954, uh, and then also from the 19th of February, um, 1975 avalanche deposits, all right? And then now three, now it was two of each of those samples. Now three uh, samples were taken from the June 30th, 1954 uh, flow, all right? Now these samples were sent to Geochron laboratories in Cambridge, okay, that whole one we talked about earlier. Um, they were sent for whole rock, potassium, argon, dating. Now, uh, remember, this is a pretty highly respected uh, commercial laboratory. Uh, by the way, new information here, but the lab manager there has a PhD in potassium, argon, dating. <laughs> the guy knows his uh, stuff, uh, at least at this point in time. I don't know if it's still the same person, uh, but at this point in time, that was the uh, scenario. All right. Now, we did not provide to them any specific location, any expected age information. Uh, none of that was given to them. All right. Uh, we did describe the samples as probably young with very little argon in them so as to ensure extra care was taken during the analytical work. Now, by the way, that's the same um, amount of data that was provided in 1992 by Steve Austin, uh, if you'll remember, when testing the lava dome there from Mount St. Helens. So roughly the same kind of scenario. We gave them the stuff, said, look, uh, it's probably pretty young, probably very little argon, so um, do with it what you will. Now, the ages that they reported back to us for these um, uh, lava flows were between 270,000 to 3.5 million years. These are for rocks which were observed to have cooled from lavas 25 to 50 years ago. One sample uh, from each flow actually yielded ages of uh, around 270,000 to 290,000 million years, while all the other samples gave ages of, of course, millions of years. Now, uh, just of uh, the same that we dealt with in uh, Mount St. Helens, uh, these rocks are known to be less than 50 years old, and it's apparent from the data that we found that these uh, potassium argon ages are due to excess argon inherited from the magma source area deep in the earth. Um, and this violates the assumption that no daughter elements were present at the time of formation. All right. Now, uh, here we are again, kind of the same song and dance. And uh, we must understand that if all of this contamination and inheritance and all these other things is happening in rocks of known age, why do we just assume that it does not happen in rocks of unknown age? It's very convenient that the known age rocks that we test um, are coming up with ages of millions and millions of years, but the unknown age rocks that we test are coming up with millions and millions of years. And we want to um, take the second half of the data, but not the first half. 
And so that's what we find going on in uh, lots of our mainstream science uh, facilities. And it's very unfortunate, but that is the story that's being sold. And I, I'm a young earth creationist. Yes, I am not a conspiracy theorist. I do not believe that everybody is out to get us. Now, Satan's out to get us, and he certainly works in the world and, and does what he will with the world. Um insofar as God allows it, all right? And we, we must be cognizant of that and aware of that. But I don't believe there's some mass conspiracy, conspiracy theory. I don't believe there's some mass deception going on. I think people are just simply blinded. They've got spiritual blinders on, and they're not able to see uh, the impact of their actions, and they're just not able to see uh, the the fallacy of what it is that they are doing, all right? I, I honestly believe that they just cannot see it. We need to pray for them, okay? And that's what needs to happen. We need to pray for them. We need to pray that they will get intellectually honest, start realizing that we are dealing with philosophical claims about the world. Uh, we're not scientifically dating the age here. Um, that's a that's a story for a different time. But, but the fact of the matter is uh, that we cannot prove the age of the earth um, using dating methods. And uh, I, I just hope the can of worms there. But, but we, we cannot prove the age of the earth using dating methods because of the assumptions. We're either using radiometric assumptions or we're using biblical assumptions. Uh, we talked about that a little bit at the beginning. And so um, somebody's assumptions are wrong. And I don't believe that it is God's assumptions that are wrong. In fact, I know it's not. Uh, so um, that is what we're dealing with. So when you have your professors and everybody tell you that the earth is millions of years old, when you're talking with people, maybe you're young and you're listening to this, and you're in science class, right? And they're teaching you that, that rocks are millions and millions of years old. Maybe you could just ask them, well, how did you come to that conclusion? Uh, well, we know, you know, of course, from the radiometric dating methods that these rocks have to be millions of years old. Oh, that's interesting. Well, did you know that when we test rocks of known age, uh, the dating methods don't hold up? I encourage you, you can use some of this, all right? Now, of course, uh, I'm a presuppositional ministry. If you don't know what that is, you can just go to my website. I'll provide a link to an article about presuppositional versus evidential apologetics. I always believe that we should use the Bible in our apologetic. I believe we're laying down our sword if we do not. Uh, but the fact of the matter is... Uh, you can assume their worldview to be true, right, uh, for uh, cases of argumentation, right? And you can simply say, look, um, I reject your fact that the, 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 that the earth is millions of years old. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, it appears, based on testing of the rocks of known age that we've done, uh, especially using the potassium-argon method, uh, that we see catastrophic failure uh, to produce actual known ages. In fact, uh, we see rocks that are 10 years old, um, rocks that are 50 years old, uh, dating at millions and millions of years, and that just doesn't make any sense. So um, why do we expect that they would work on rocks of unknown age when they're not working on rocks of known age? So you can bring that up. Up. You can deal with that, um, and you can uh, confidently address uh, your professors, confidently address um, those around you who are, are are bringing these subjects up, all right? So I want you to, again, be able to defend your faith with confidence. So I'm going to give you a quick bonus, and then we're going to go, because we're uh, 47 minutes into this thing so far. Uh, so we're going to keep on moving um, and get done. I want to uh, bring up the problem of Surtsey Island. Searcy Island. Now, no radiometric dating has been done thus far on this island. Um, however, uh, what it is, it's an Icelandic island. It was formed only days, in only days, from an undersea volcanic eruption. All right, and that, that happened uh, just off the coast of Iceland in the North Atlantic in 1963. And I want to. Um, a read for you. Now remember, we're talking about an island that formed in days. An island that forms in days. All right. Uh, I want to um, give you a quote from the official Icelandic geologist, and I'm going to totally mess up his name here, but um, Sigurdor uh, Thorarinson. Okay, Signador Thorarianson. Now, I'm sure I'm sure that name is way, way wrong, not pronouncing it anywhere near right. Uh, but this is a pretty uh, common quote, so you can probably uh, sound it out based on the way I've said it and look this up. In National Geographic, uh, he said something like this, In one week's time, we witnessed changes that elsewhere might take decades or even centuries. Despite the extreme youth of the growing island, we now encounter a landscape so varied that it is almost beyond belief. And in another publication, uh, he said something to the effect of, uh, we're witnessing here what uh, what we know to take millions of years in other places. Now, he was not a Christian, okay? Um, he was not a Christian. But this formation of Surtsey Island in the 60s 
caused him to question everything that he believed to be true about geology uh, because he did not believe, uh, like like the geologists uh, today don't typically believe, in any kind of um, catastrophic processes that could take place on a global scale. But here's the thing. If it could take place just in the formation of an island, why can't we extrapolate that out and allow it to take place on a global scale? Is the world that we see today the world we would expect if that had happened? I really believe it is. I really believe it is. So Circe, uh, to me, is concrete evidence that uh, millions of years are just simply not necessary when we look at the world around us. We don't need to invoke millions of years to explain what we see with our eyes. Um, it doesn't make sense to do that. It, not in uh, not in geology, not in um, astronomy, and not in uh, archaeology. Uh, there's just no reason that assumption does not have to be there. It is a man-made assumption. We don't have to assume it in biology. We can perfectly account for the species and everything that we see, uh, the vast genetic diversity that we see today. If we use the Bible's timeline, we can completely account for all of those things. There's no reason to invoke millions of years for any reason. And Circe, um, while not any kind of proof uh, as far as radiometric dating is concerned, it is certainly proof from geology that millions of years are not necessary in order to produce a structure that looks like, according to secular geology, it could have taken millions of years. It's just simply not necessary, and therefore we do not accept it. Thank you so much for hanging out with us today. That's going to wrap up today's lesson, um, and we will uh, see you next week. Uh, again, I want to encourage you to check out the show notes. Uh, some of the things that we mentioned throughout the episode uh, will be there um, in the show notes, and you can take a look at that for yourself. Um, don't forget to go to stevetram.com slash defend. stevetram.com slash defend. Sign up for that Defend Your Faith with Confidence course, and uh, so you can just uh, boldly go out there and proclaim the truth of the gospel uh, contend for the gospel, defend the gospel. Um, if the gospel is true, and it is, then it is the most important thing in anybody's life. All of this science is great. I love talking about this. But ultimately, we talk about this as a bridge to the gospel. We have to get there. We have to get there with people because only the life-changing truth of the gospel can even make people look at the world with such eyes that they can see it the way that we do. We have to get to the mind life, and most importantly, the heart transformation that comes along with believing in Jesus Christ and what he did for the world. Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we love you this morning. We want to thank you again for the opportunity to study your word and your world. We want to thank you for sending your son to die on a cross for us when we did not deserve it. We want to thank you for allowing us to see the truth in a world that is so blinded um, by Satan's deception, Lord. Um, we love you and we thank you for allowing us to see this. Uh, Lord, help us to be able to convey it to others in a way that is attractive and appealing, in a way that makes sense for them. Help us to be able to lay out a clear case, Lord, uh, for you and for the world that you've given us to study and to live in. Father, we love you. We want to thank you again for all your many blessings, certainly in my life, in my family's life, for the life of in our listeners. Lord, I'm sure many of us out here have different prayer requests, different needs going on right now. I know I have some in my life. I pray, God, that you, uh, in knowing those, would answer those according to your will, whether it be yes, no, or maybe. I pray that you would just answer those and um, uh, in the way that you see fit. And just help us, Lord. It's a tough world, Lord, but we know that we serve a God who is greater than our problems, greater than our trials, greater than our needs, greater than our enemies, greater than our opposition. Uh, Lord, we love you. And we want to ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this week of the Creation Academy, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.